UK Motor Dog. Hi everyone, welcome back again for the 73rd podcast. I don't know why I've started telling you which number they are now, but I found it interesting. Anyway, I'm Mike, I have got Jim, and I have got David. Hi guys. Hi, how you doing? Hello there, how are you? I don't know if you can hear this in the background right now, and you, you may or may not be able to, but there is the most amazingly loud storm going on outside, just wind. I, I, I'm full of wind here. I think there's fence panels blowing about and everything, I've just seen a cow... The whole thing. Um, so if you hear some sort of banging and knocking and, and blowing, it's it's in the background. It's not us. I'm not quite sure how to say that. But anyway, let's move on. My uh, my sheep ended up on the other side of the garden um, to, to where I'd left him this morning. So he got blown around a little bit. He is, uh, he, is, he is only about 12 inches tall and made out of very thin metal. So that probably explains it. Mm, yes, I have a slide that's blown around the garden and there's all kinds of bits of stuff that's just everywhere now. Actually, I'm doing the garden as we speak at the moment. I say doing the garden. Uh, and at the back end of you're, my you're garden... You're destroying is, the garden. I'm destroying the garden so I can I can make it a bit longer. Because I had a, a patio that where a, a pond used to be once upon a time and it all collapsed in itself and everything. So it's, it's all gone. Um, but what I did have on the patio was, or, or certainly is a failed project, I had the back end of a, of an Orion, uh, which I decided I was going to make into a barbecue with outdoor speakers and bits and pieces in. Uh, and like many things, it's gone by the wayside and it now looks like it's been planted because it's sticking out of the ground. Um, and I thought, do I just, do I just tell my, my neighbours I've, I've planted onions or something? But it's, I'm just expecting that to come... Absolutely... <laughs> or an, an onion, as the case An onion. I'm just absolutely expecting that to fall over any time anytime now and just make a horrific bang. Um, Hang on, so, so, yeah. so you've, had, you've had half a Ford chucked in your back garden for how yes. long? Mm, getting on for six years. How the hell has that not rotted away? Well, I don't know, maybe they rot worse when they're complete. <laughs> I have no idea. It is an 80s Ford. It does need new wheel arches. It's a good thing it's not an Alpha Sud or something. There'd be nothing left if it was an Alpha Sud. It'd be a pile of red rust. It, or not even that probably would have blown away, actually, given the wind you were experiencing. Though if it was a barbecue and it was um, 80s rust, were they still using lead-based paint? So that would have been an extra tasty barbecue, wouldn't it? Feel the brain cells disappear as, <laughs> as the barbecue goes on. Eat, eat well, kids. Eat well. Well, if if any of you've ever tasted my barbecues, and I say tasted, basically what happens is I cook everything till it's on fire. And this happened, I think, at a barbecue you were at, Jim, where I managed to set the sausages on fire, and I threw one into yes, the but pond. Then, so you threw the sausage into the into the pond into the the collection of rubble and dead plants and bits and pieces down there and it carried on burning yes. for about three quarters of an hour didn't it i'm really not sure how you manage that where are you getting your sausages from <laughs> bit of f1 news this week what's bigger news we've had a, uh, a couple of race dates announced so we now look to be up to 17 or 18 races this year. Good news, Turkey is back, so watching uh, watching all the cars go through Turn 8 I think is going to be reasonably spectacular. We do have to go to uh, to Bahrain twice, I think, but hey, some racing is better than no racing. Uh, but probably in slightly bigger news, we've had uh, Williams, after, after Claire Williams declaring that Williams would be sold over her dead body, uh, Williams has now been sold. Um, so... I assume she's still with us. 
Uh, she is well. She was talking about it. So whether whether they whether they've just inserted an animatronic robot into her and are now operating her like a puppet, I'm not quite sure. But uh, no, she she was very uh, very ebullient about the uh, the future of Williams. Now they have this deal. Whether that means it's because she gets to keep her job or not, I'm not too certain really. But hey, we shall uh, we shall see. But I think it's. I, it remains to be seen, but I think it can only be good news that they have uh, new backers. They have a bit of financial stability at last, because it's it's been really quite painful watching Williams the last couple of years struggling as a uh, as a backmarker team. You think about the the heritage, the history, the championships they won. You know, when I first really started watching Formula One, uh, Williams were were all dominant, all conquering, and Damon Hill winning the championship with them in '96 to see their decline slowly but surely. Uh, has has been quite painful. So, what do we think? Yeah, good news. Where's the money come from? An American outfit, wasn't it? Some sort of investment outfit. Yes, Doralton Capital have uh, have bought a uh, a rather large chunk of Williams. Uh, I I don't really know what they do. I must admit, I don't think they have a particular racing background. Uh, if you look at some of the companies that they're invested in, uh, it's it's everything from sports companies to um, to food companies, to a company called an Integrity Group. I have no idea what an Integrity Group is. Um, oh, they do maintenance and repair of industrial refining and chemical plants. So probably something quite interesting, but maybe not that exciting. So they're simply putting up the money. So there doesn't seem to be a massive uh, of racing pedigree behind there. But I'd say it's probably rare for an investment company to chuck money into a racing thing. So you always say if you want to make a small fortune in motor racing, then start with a large one. <laughs> Very true. Very true. Like you, I'm glad that Williams has some stability. I mean, I'm not as into Formula One as I used to be, but like you, I remember the glory days of, of Williams very well. Likewise, um, McLaren, of course, another team that's fallen on hard times of late. And um, anything that keeps them in the game, I guess, has got to be a good thing. It's a bit bittersweet. It's always been the family team, but... Um, needs must i guess yeah i mean it's uh, much as it's a romantic idea to have a a family-owned team you know family-owned businesses are so rare these days let alone a multi-million multi-billion pound business that being a formula one team is you know uh, to have the budget of 150 200 250 million euros a year uh, that's that's very 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 rare for uh for any company let alone a small family run team it uh, it just doesn't happen too much that's that's not the way of the world williams always had the um the engineering side as well didn't they i mean i i'm guessing that that's maybe not such a big part of the um of the business these days if they haven't got that to fall back on well yeah i think there's uh, there's a lot of um outsourcing and i think that's probably where mclaren have done a little bit better over the last couple of years is the although you could argue the focus on the road car projects and uh, McLaren Engineering has has maybe detracted from Formula One. If it gives the rest of the company a basis on which to continue, then fair play. It's, it's a bit like the SUV, you know, Aston Martin making an SUV argument. Do Are we really interested in an SUV? Probably not. But if they make an SUV and it sells by the bucket load and that allows them to carry on making interesting and exciting cars, then actually it's it's kind of an okay trade-off, isn't it? Um, well, that's so a Porsche McLaren, Cayenne, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, saved the company, didn't it? It did, and and actually, it's if you want that kind of car, it's a good that kind of car to have, I think. 
But like you say, if it means that they can carry on making more interesting stuff, then then I'm for it. I suppose if you're rich enough, you can have both. Well, I think Ferrari had always uh, had always said they sell road cars in order to go racing. So if McLaren are doing the same and that's that's allowing them a bit more money to go racing, then uh, then happy days. They've got a bit of Bahraini money, of course. I, I think there's a slight problem at the moment, and that this is the the funding, the, the money, and maybe the overall interest behind motorsport in general. And just to sort of hear me out on this one, because you might disagree, because certainly we've spoken before about how expensive it is to go and see Formula One, for example. But I think that the, the rally, uh, the World Rally Championship, or RAC Rally as it was when we were when we were kids, but I think the, the World Rally Championship is, is a really good example of this. And one such casualty, which we'll come back to later on, I'm sure, is Mitsubishi. Mitsubishi was... A, a you know a not particularly cool um, Japanese brand, but when they hit the rally stage and all of a sudden you had the Evo, they had an incredible product that was hugely desirable. People aren't quite so interested these days, I think, in in some motorsports like like rallying, and I I, I would almost say it's 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 killed the company. I mean, there are other factors as well, which I'm sure we'll come back to later. But I think this is true of a lot of of different companies, and and not having that halo product in motorsport, and maybe motorsport not being as attractive as it once was is causing an issue i think with the road cars with the sort of the advent now of um, of formula e you've got to hope that the manufacturers who are now starting to get behind uh, electric vehicles in quite some measure i mean you, you can't move for adverts for the new electric um voxel of course e or whatever and the various sort of peugeot derivatives i mean they're they're becoming very much the mainstream now and i can't help but think that there's going to be some alliance soon with either formula e or some other form of electric based motorsport because that's the way the world's going then surely racing will follow otherwise formula one is going to look and and as rallying does seem to be as you mentioned about mitsubishi it's going to look very much like an anachronism in the modern world Mm, i think you're right i mean you've got jaguar with the i-pace haven't you as an example of this um so the i-paces have been developed um through racing so they brought some of the technology from racing such as battery life and a few other bits and pieces into the actual cars um but actually it's it's been enough to to make me sit up and take a bit more notice of the i-pace which is not a bad looking car but it is a, a different looking car there are definitely ins for manufacturers i, I think it'd be interesting to see a proper tesla race so like a, a formula tesla or something similar a bit, a bit like the dtm where you'd have um maybe Teslas and, I don't know, maybe I-Pace or something similar battling out against each other. I think that would be quite interesting just to see how long they last and what happens when you crash them into each other. Well, I think you're absolutely spot on about Mitsubishi and and rallying. I mean, when I was uh, growing up, yeah, Mitsubishi was never a brand that particularly appealed until I started watching rallying and you had the the Lancer, as you said. One of my all-time dream cars and uh, and if I win the lottery it's, it's a car I'm going to have to hunt out probably pay through the notes for uh, but it would be a Lancer Evolution 6 Tommy Mackinnon edition I knew you were going to say Tommy Mack 20 years old this year just to uh, just to make us all feel very old um, you know that that was one of the cars that, that I lusted after just as I passed my test and um, yeah 20 years later it's uh, it's still out of reach unfortunately the appreciation of, uh, of such a car pushes it um, out of reach of normal people um, but yeah it, was, it, it made me then when I was looking around for uh, for what car to buy 
uh, later on is it, it made me consider the manufacturer, even if I couldn't afford a Lancer, uh, the fact that Mitsubishi made the Lancer. I said, oh, well, if I ended up buying a, uh, I think I looked quite, quite seriously at a Colt. It, yeah, well, it's from the people who make a Lancer, so therefore a Colt must be a cool car. Um, and uh, yeah, I think with without motorsport, there is something missing there. Whether all motorsports going to go electric or not, I'm I'm not too sure. We certainly need much smaller, lighter batteries. You know, we need that until the powertrain weighs roughly as much as the powertrain in a Formula One car or a touring car or a rally car, whatever it is, with a battery on board that'll give the same range as 100 litres of fuel as they're limited to in, in Formula 1 Grand Prix these days. And until we get to that weight and that size and that range, then then I don't think electric's going to take over, to be fair. But does does it need to? I think we've said before, do, will petrol just become the plaything of the rich, like horses did? Well, I think they're going to have to be seen to be reflecting the real world. And if the real world is moving away from internal combustion engines then I think people are going to turn their backs on, on motorsport if they see it as, as irrelevant. I mean, whilst you know, I would desperately love to see petrol-powered uh, Formula One and rallying go on for as long as possible, I think realistically there's going to at least have to be more hybrid, as there is obviously in Formula One, but I think you're going to have to see it filtering down pretty quickly into other um, classes of motorsport because otherwise I think people are just going to go, well, what's the point? What does it say to me? It's still people running around making noises and overtaking each other but in the real world i get in a car that's silent and what does that say to me oh yeah there will always be the diehards and there there always will be and that's that's right but i think they're gonna have to do something they say racing improves the breed or or words to that effect and uh i think there's gonna have to come a time where you will see teslas racing around because they're the cars that people see every day that they get into increasingly and they're going to want to see that going around a track with loads of numbers and stickers and adverts on the side. Mm. I think you're right because um, I was reading earlier today that Elon Musk has said that he wants to to introduce cheaper and cheaper Teslas, something he's, he said for a long time. But the next Tesla, which they're not quite sure what it might be, whether it would be a, a Tesla 2 or something similar, is effectively going to be a, a hatchback version of, of the existing three. So whether we start to see those, they reckon they're going to be about the 27 grand mark, well, that's what they're going to aim for, theoretically. Whether they start to become a lot more mainstream, and it's the kind of car your mum and your dad drive, then certainly you'd, you'd expect to see a bit more of them in, in motorsport. But I do like the idea of having a curse system on a rally car. I think that'd be great, wouldn't it? Just, just as you're approaching a jump, just, just for sheer fun. I think if they increase the, the hybrid or the electric function in in the powertrains of racing cars that are hybrids these days so increase the battery capacity or the power allowance etc in formula one again as you say motorsport improves the breed doesn't it if you've got somebody like mclaren applied technologies or whatever they call the company or williams grand prix engineering or whatever working on that that battery tech you know if if mclaren are the company to crack a battery that's a quarter of the weight and a quarter of the size and double the power or whatever the figures happen to be compared to what we have now, then then A, that's that's an absolute lifeline for the company. They can just license that technology and, and run with it. But B, the incentive is there and, and the money is there. You know, if you put a big prize pot up 
for winning the Formula One World Championship, well, that's a very big incentive to chuck a hell of a lot of money into uh, into perfecting the technology. But I think just as um, you know, certain certain of the bigger Formula One teams have got the money and the backing to do it, whether it's Red Bull or Mercedes chucking their weight behind it. I think you know we'll see more and more car manufacturers getting together be it through agreements to develop and share technology or car companies taking each other over. Uh, I think just as we've seen the uh, the FCA group grow in size and then shed the brands that it doesn't like and then grow in size, and we've had, obviously, Peugeot Citroën become one and they've swallowed up um, Vauxhall or GM. Uh, you know, I, what what's the next, the next big one? Obviously, we've got VW, Audi... Seat, Skoda, Lamborghini, and some others, all as one company. You know who's who's next? Are are VW going to buy Ford? Are Ford going to buy somebody? You know, it, it certainly remains to be seen. I think the only way really that um, this technology is going to grow and develop in a way that is particularly affordable is to have these continual partnerships and mergers and so on and so forth. You've got the Renault Nissan alliance as well as you say. Um, if you look at things like the Leaf and the Zoe, um, some manufacturers have been doing this for some years. Um, let's be honest. And there are others that are definitely further behind. But whether we like it or not, we have a regulation coming, which means we're not going to be able to run standard combustion engines in a way that we have before, which I think makes cars, um, which I know David is desperate to talk about, even more special, considering where we're going. Desperate's a strong word, but I I do think it merits a mention. It's the complete antithesis of everything we've just been talking about, but it's also still a very clever car, and that's the uh, the new T fifty from Gordon Murray Automotive, which um, is pretty. Is due is oh, it's an amazing thing, isn't it? I mean, I've mm. watched uh, I've watched a few of the videos now, the launch video with uh, Mr. Frankitty just down the road here at Dunsfold, and also um, I think Harry Metcalf's been down there as well, which was a particularly good interview, actually, because he he's obviously got a good rapport with uh, with Gordon Murray. They're both car nuts, and uh, Harry's got a few of his own, obviously, well-known in the, uh, in the motoring uh, reporting trade. Uh, but this new car is the basically the son of the mclaren f1 i mean which stood mm. on its own for so long and um just as others are starting to finally make inroads into its progress murray pulls this thing out and goes oh now catch me if you can it's it's going to be a remarkable thing a v12 naturally aspirated v12 engine no um no hybrid technology just very clever light engineering and this engine in itself will rev to stratospheric levels. I mean, I think 11,500, 12,000 revs, something like that. And it's like rev a motorbike as fast engine, as, isn't it? Well, as fast, if not quicker, than a Formula One car. The lack of inertia in the thing. And it is basically based on Formula One technology. There's no no belts, there's no chains. It's all gear-driven. The man is a visionary. And uh, Cosworth have, um, have very much fallen in line with him. It's it's a remarkable thing. I urge anybody, if you haven't, if for some reason you've been under a rock and haven't seen this thing, go and search it out. It's just insane. And I want one. <laughs> and I'm never going to have one, sadly, but I, I would love to have even just a look at one. What is the price tag on it? Um, at present um, present rate of exchange, two million pounds, I believe. What? So, it, see, it's, I, I think that's maybe quite a good investment. To be fair, I think uh, well, if you could get one of those on a PCP, 
I think if you could go back in time and look, <laughs> look at the future guaranteed residual values of a McLaren F1, I, I dare say you'd probably get get paid about ten thousand pounds a month to uh, to own and <laughs> drive one, wouldn't you? But it, it's yeah, uh, yeah if, if the uh, the prices of some of these uh, cars, but it's, it's long term. I mean, what what are McLaren F1s change hands for now? Million pounds? About fifteen million. Fifteen million dollars. Oh, yeah. I think one went for eight really? million plus. Yeah, oh, they, they are. Yeah, they are worth. I think the thing is as well with this car, you can see the DNA, can't you? It's kind of like if they had the technology then to put in the F1, this is what they would have done. I think now technology has caught up with the man's vision. I think you're absolutely right. He is a visionary. Uh, it does seem refreshingly old school to a certain extent because it has a normal engine under the hybrid tech. However, the fan, that is a thing I think we need to talk about because that is pretty incredible. It makes it look a bit like a Batmobile, I think, from the back. Yeah, eight and a half kilowatts that thing generates. Yeah, he'd said it was. Um, it, it was only really now he could make the car. You know, he he dabbled with a few other projects and released a few concepts and bits and pieces. But he said a lot of it was waiting for um, material technology and things like that to catch up with what he wanted to make. I I will say it's it's. I prefer the looks of a McLaren F1. I, I don't know if that's. Sacrilege. I... Well, they're not that dissimilar from what I can see. I mean, they they're similar in size. I think it smooths off a few of the edges of the F1. It um, it looks basically like an updated version. If someone was to say, "Draw me," if they hadn't made this thing, and someone was to say, "Draw me an updated F1," I think you probably wouldn't come too far away. It's got very little, if no, overhangs. Again, the man's packaging abilities are quite remarkable they should sort of get him into (laughs) some companies reducing the packaging that they're trying to tell us not to have anymore get rid of plastics and cardboard he's your man but it's it's even going so far as to have it's still got an an h h pattern gearbox it doesn't have um uh, flappy paddles it's still got the h pattern box um he's he's taken the opportunity to update the things as you rightly say uh that weren't right with the F1 at the time because again he was so far ahead of the curb so it's going to have headlights that let you see where you're going which is probably quite good when the thing will probably do north of 200 and something miles an hour it will also need less maintenance i think there's an awful lot they have to do you know an awful lot they have to do um if you're in the unfortunate position of having an F1 unfortunately every 5000 miles you have to have your clutch adjusted which this thing apparently is zero maintenance according to what i was watching the other day um the luggage the bespoke luggage that fits in all sorts of places that you'd never imagine even in the mclaren f1 was very clever but apparently this is even more practical it's got more storage than some small hatchbacks apparently so yeah it's it's a remarkable thing i mean i'm still sort of taking it in and sort of looking into it but it's going to do some amazing things and due due on the roads in a couple of years and as i say the man lives not a million miles from me and i i've seen him on more than more than one occasion driving to work in these various collection of interesting stuff and they're making mm. the thing over at dunsfold the top gear test track where they've built you know, bespoke buildings to build this thing that are now starting just to be fitted out for production and i believe the mule that has the uh, the one current engine that cosworth have let them have is due to start any time now uh, heading out on the road so i'm going to be keeping my eyes peeled for heavily disguised odd looking fiberglass clad cars with dazzle camouflage on the roads of surrey around here because it'll be making an interesting noise if nothing else do we think this is going to be the the last the last car like that the last you know analog 
mechanical, you know, manual gear changes he said that, that he'd set out to make even better than the McLaren F1. And I think one of the things that everybody who's lucky enough to have driven a McLaren F1 raves about the, the gear change. I think that was where the, the rather I've used cliche of a, of a bolt action rifle came mm. from, wasn't it? And he, and he set out to make yep. it better. But is, is this the last of those sort of cars that, that we're going to see, so I think it's only low volume manufacturers that that can get away without uh, without meeting emissions regulations and things like that. You know, Lotus were always one of the last to include uh, ABS brakes or airbags or bits and pieces like that because the the volumes were so low they didn't need to. Uh, I think the fact that a Lotus now comes with all sorts of driver aids and airbags and everything like that they they're they're almost too big to be able to do things like a T fifty, aren't they? I think this is a swan song. I think it's going to be the last of its type, definitely going to be the last of its type, because he's the only man who can do it. If it's going to go out with a bang, it might as well go out with someone like him who who knows exactly what he's doing. And it will be crash tested, it will be emissions tested, it will sell anywhere in the world, it's fully legal. He was bemoaning the fact that he only had four prototypes to play with last time. Uh, He's now, I think, got 11 he said i've got to have 11 in order to make it meet emissions and i can imagine the pain that he's going to go through sort of smacking at least two of those into a concrete block i think you're right as well about this being an evolution of the f1 because it's a bit like in my mind seeing a 1980s 911 and seeing what they can do today because you can Mm. you can see you can see that the dna you can see the relationship between the two but it is definitely thoroughly up to date You've got a similar driving position. You've, you know, they, they say the proportions are the same. The look is the same. You can see it comes from the same hand. What an incredible car! And uh, like you say, when you say Gordon Murray's the uh, the only one who could make a car like that, I think the only other name, certainly in this country, that could get away with doing something like that is maybe what Adrian Newey. Um, uh, I know he's mm. got his uh, his Valkyrie project but that's uh that's an entirely different beast altogether that's got as much tech and and advanced and f1 technology in it as possible to the the point of of near insanity i think everything that that car's capable of so two very different cars from two very big names so if uh if we uh, get the opportunity to road test those we'll uh we'll be sure to uh, to do so i think wishful thinking. join a very long queue <laughs> <laughs> Following on from last week's podcast, a number of you have sent messages to us telling us the things that you think are brilliant features in cars. Now, there are some some pretty good ones, to be honest. One which I thought was absolutely exceptional was a chap who had a Golf R, drove over on the Euro Tunnel, and when he arrived in France, it flashed up on the dash saying that the lights had automatically been adjusted to the opposite side of the road because it worked out where it was by sat-nav. That is a great feature. That's a very nice Which touch because plenty of cars will do it if you press eighty million T buttons in the uh, in the steering wheel to get it to the right menu and the right settings. But no, to do it automatically, that's uh, that. Why can't more cars do that? If if it can change their headlights left to right, why doesn't it do it automatically? Yeah, I mean, one of those things you definitely wouldn't have expected. You wouldn't know about it because nobody really bothers to read the whole manual cover to cover, and it would have just done it. And it's these little bits of surprise and delight. Which are which are superb, and some of the things are much smaller. Skoda, for example, have the hidden ice scraper in the fuel cap or umbrella under the seat. Very clever. 
And you said about um, reverse parking as well. Yes, it does do that, yeah. It shows you the curb, it remembers it in your electric seat setting. It's all mod cons. It's very, very clever. And, um, yeah, as soon as you start driving away, the thing sort of reverts to where it used to be. It's um, it's a bit hit or miss sometimes. Sometimes it gets remembered in the seat setting, sometimes it doesn't. But... Um, it's a very, very nice feature, and another one that I think is fairly common across most VAG, Volkswagens, Audis, and the like, is the fact that when you wash the windscreen, the um, the ventilation goes into recirculation mode, so you don't get a face full of the uh, the chemicals that are being squirted onto your windscreen. Does it really? I've never noticed. Oh, I see, that nullifies yeah. the, uh, the benefit of uh, very berry or lime-flavoured screen washes you can get these days, so it smells quite nice when it comes <laughs> into the cabin, but it's a, uh, yeah, the... the auto dipping rear view mirror is it's one of my biggest regrets in life no that's a bit of an overstatement if that's the only regret i've got i'm, uh, I'm doing okay but i i didn't spec that on uh, on my car i thought it came with it automatically but apparently you needed to spec the um the power fold mirrors that that folded when you lock the vehicle um but silly me i assumed well it has electric mirrors that you can electrically operate at the push of a button the car knows it's in reverse so why wouldn't it do it uh, but no, it only comes if you spend another four, five, six hundred quid on power fold mirrors. Well, I felt a little bit shortchanged by that. I must admit that it it didn't at least have that feature already built into it. It was a, it was a bit of a con, if I'm honest. You know, all the electrics are there. Why not make it work? Just as the if your headlights change left to right, why not make it do it automatically when you're abroad? But having said that, I've driven a. Uh, it's when the technology is inconsistent across the range that is is slightly irritating. The uh, older shape Ford Focus, for example, might have come with traffic sign recognition. It might have come with uh, a speed limiter, but the two weren't linked together. So the car would look at the sign at the side of the road and know that it was a 30 mile an hour speed limit, but it wouldn't change the speed limiter to that. And it was, it was most odd. Every other car in the range virtually did. But it was just very odd when you hopped in a Focus and it didn't do it. So. Mm. I think this is going to be something that's going to become law sooner rather than later. We're going to end up having a variable speed limiter that can see the traffic signs and adjust the speed to stop you from going over, unless you put your foot down and drive through it, which is is useful at times, but it is a pain in the backside. And we were, I can't remember what we were driving or where we were going, but I remember that we were behind a lorry and it saw the number on the back at 120. Um, <laughs> and suddenly it allowed us to go much, much faster. And this is the same if it's got the variable cruise control because it can see the sign and then accelerate you off. But that would be a very difficult one to try and explain. Yeah, I'm terribly sorry, officer. I was following a lorry and the car decided that we needed to do 120 miles an hour. It's, uh, it's actually a worry, because although to uh, to get up to 120 in, in most cars, yes, you'd have to put your foot fairly hard down, so you'd probably override the speed limiter anyway. Um, but in, in something with, with reasonably long legs or north of a couple of hundred brake horsepower, you know, it, it doesn't take a lot of throttle in uh, top gear to get you at 80, 90 or even 100 miles an hour these days. Um, and given how refined and cosseted and insulated most modern cars are, you can very easily do, you know, I remember doing a uh, 100 miles an hour for the first time in a car on a, on a private test track, of course, but it, uh, it felt, it certainly felt like 100 miles an hour, A, because I'd never driven that fast before, but B, everything was a bit noisy, a bit rattly, a bit shaky, etc. You know, it's, it's like driving a go-car, you, you're only doing 30 miles an hour, you watch it from the outside, it all looks quite slow and sedate and in an indoor rental car. Um, but when you're driving it, it, it feels much quicker than it is um, until you get in a proper car and you're doing 
80, 90, even 100 miles an hour. That really feels quick. Uh, but the, the more modern and refined stuff gets, you know, it's, it's capable of well north of 100 miles an hour without breaking sweat and without the passengers realising you're doing that speed either. So that is a bit of a worry until the technology's correct. And there's there's one bit on our drive to work, isn't there? It always sees just as you peel onto the dual carriageway and you can finally put your foot down and it's it's not a 50 mile an hour limit, it sees the speed limits for the retail park on the left-hand side and all of a sudden puts the speed limiter on to 30 miles an hour whilst you're in the outside lane trying to build up some speed. So it's, uh, it's still not quite there, the technology, but it's certainly getting better. Mm. Yeah, it, it definitely is. I think probably the biggest contrast for me, the, the onion. In fact, I was in a Sierra Cosworth going up um, a private test track. Uh, at probably about 100. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of them miles. around here, isn't there? The loads, yeah. Or maybe it was on the autobahn, I can't remember. <laughs> um, doing about 140 miles an hour, and at this point the doors had opened at the top, the wipers had lifted off the windscreen, and it was sketchy as hell. It was even sketchy when you had to brake suddenly for something, um, and the brake disc then started to judder. Not really... Um, yeah, it just you, you kind of notice that speed. I was in an S-Class, on the other hand, again on a private road, or possibly the autobahn, in the back and the guy that was driving at the time said how fast do you think we're going i said oh don't know, about 90 or so no we've hit the limiter and you just you can't feel it it's so you know, comfortable. What, 155 miles an hour 155 yeah absolutely and you just you just don't notice it's so comfortable but the, the difference in in terms of what cars can deliver to you now speed is you, you lose that sensation a lot and i think as you say the more you get in terms of technology the more you you lose in terms of feel the less you get to feel that speed and there are cars that that you can really get involved with and i guess the t50 would be one of these but if you think back to something like a caterham 7 or um whatever the equivalent caterham is now you really feel how fast you're going you're really close to the ground you feel everything back through the steering wheel and so on but you, you do lose a lot of that with with modern cars and i think to a certain extent you lose a lot of the experience when you add too much technology into it. And I know we've said it before, so I won't go into too much detail about it, but when the cars are doing so much for you, I think you lose a lot of the experience. I think we are going to be seeing more cars which are effectively armchairs um, with a good amount of tech in them, um, like a good tech for your phone or what have you, as opposed to cars which are fantastic to drive. I guess what we'll see as time goes on is that the people that own these cars are enthusiasts like us. And these will be the few petrol cars maybe that are left or you know, cars which are a bit more specialist will be for people that want to drive. The rest of them will probably just drive around by themselves. Well, it's going to be the classic car market, isn't it? That's going to be the um, the predominant one for anyone who still wants an internal combustion engine. And I fear that um, in future that will probably be legislated that if your car is a certain age or is of significant historical interest then you will be permitted to allow to be allowed on the road with the thing otherwise uh, you're gonna have to make a pretty good case in the same way that uh, the us is very very strict and restricted on um, what you can import it's got to be over 25 years old before they'll let it in because it doesn't reach uh, america's very sort of different rules and regulations in terms of crash and emissions um, they do let the uh, the odd few through uh, for what they call show and display, and the famous one being Jay Leno's McLaren F1, which um, he shows and displays quite a lot from what I've seen on his videos. It's, uh, <laughs> it's never off the streets of LA, as far as I can tell. 
But um, I think this is the way it's going to go. Increasingly, people are probably going to go, well, if you make my car drive itself and make it as comfortable as possible, I'm just going to put it in auto mode and let it get me there. But if it has mm. the capability to entertain you by putting it in manual mode of a weekend so you can go and black down the country roads, I think that's probably the sweet spot. One, it can do both. It's um, it's a fun car when you want it to be, but it's a, it's basically public transport of your own when you don't. I think you're absolutely right, and that um, but the the beauty of lots of regulations and emission rules and bits and pieces they come as they come in. There's a, there's always a mad scramble by lots of the manufacturers, inevitably just with pressure on the dealers because they just send them to the dealers and say, oh, by the way, you need to register all these by the end of the month, otherwise you can't register them. But it's generally the case that once something is registered for you, certainly in the UK. Uh, you are then, it's registered, you're allowed. So regardless of the emissions, as long as it complied with the standards at the time it was registered, um, then the, the the banding that you're in for CO2, the the use, the amount of vehicle excise duty you pay, etc., is, is fairly well set in stone. It goes up a couple of quid every year with inflation, of course, um, or even if we're in recession, it still goes up with inflation that isn't there. But you're, you know, you're allowed to use it. So as long as it's in uh, maintained in, Good working order and passes the MOT, then then carry on. And I think that I think that's pretty much the case worldwide, but it's certainly the case in the UK. So uh, long may that continue. Yeah, here, here. There's some some really odd laws, aren't there? In America, it varies from state to state with what you can and can't have. So some cars can be legal or illegal in certain places. I think the um, R34 Skyline was famously illegal in America, wasn't it? Or certainly illegal in certain states. Um, it's certainly harder in certain places in the world to have older cars, Japan being a- another example of this. And I suspect probably what we will see is, like, like we have the historic class for tax now, whether we will have cars separated into into different groups or whether we are only allowed to use them for certain things, like in Japan, for example, where you might have certain days that you can drive a particular car or whatever it might be. I really hope that the future doesn't hold the end for a lot of the cars that that people have preserved and kept. And I think part of the charm of some of the classic cars are cars which are just normal cooking spec models. But when you see a Mark One Fiesta out and about, or an, you know a Mark One Polo, or you see I don't know an Austin A thirty five that's that's nothing particularly special. Uh, but these are cars that have somehow survived. Cars that have been owned by people's granddads or been stuck in a barn somewhere, and there's a certain charm about this the fact that they aren't all sports cars they aren't all aston martins and ferraris and and so on and so forth there is something really nice about seeing just a a simple standard old car and going oh yeah my dad used to have one of those or my uncle used to have one of those or my gran had one or whatever it might be and i think we will see a lot more of these cars as it becomes harder and harder to own them just disappear Uh, and i think that would be a shame i do wonder if in uh 20 30, 50, 60, however many years' time, the uh, the Mark III KA that's uh, just gone out of production and I think you can no longer register, you know, will, will that be viewed as the last of the analogue Fords? You know, there's there's no hybrid tech, there's no, um, no nothing in it, hence it had to go out of production because it didn't meet CO2 standards. I'm not quite sure that's going to be held in the same regard, but um, maybe it's uh, it's just too new and too modern for us to to even think about that. Yeah, I mean, who'd have said in 1970-odd, yeah, buy a base spec Fiesta and 
tuck it away in the garage and it will be worth a lot of money in a few years' time. Or, you know, Vauxhall Novas and things like that. You know, cars that were uh, a dime a dozen back in the day uh, are now very rare and very collectible. Mark II Golfs as well, you know. Even Mark just a couple Escorts. of years ago. Yeah, Mark I Escorts, Mark II Golfs, even, you know, five or six years ago, a couple of thousand pounds would buy you a very, very, very tidy Mark II Golf. And they're... they're Changing hands for north of ten grand now, and I think that's that's only going to that price is only going to increase, isn't it? Mm. Just on the on the subject of the car or the ka or however we pronounce it this way, I've never been sure. Um, the unsold stock there, presumably, they will be recalled and then sold in a market where um, legislation is somewhat less taxing, should we say? Will that end, a lot of them will end up in South America or if they're right hand drive somewhere in Africa? I'm guessing a, a, an emerging market or third world, depending on how uncharitable you want to be. No, I mean, the uh, well, certainly the way Ford works in the UK is every dealer group has what they call a wholesale. So they get allocated a certain number of cars, and that's everything from, you know, you could get a wholesale of a 1,000 cars, of which 50 are KA, 500 are Fiesta, 200 are Cougar, etc., etc. And in that, they, they choose the engines, the colours, the gearboxes, the specs, whatever they want. But ultimately, every car that's produced by pretty much every manufacturer has has a home, and it has a home at a dealership, somewhere in the country or somewhere in, in Europe, and that vehicle will get shipped there, and that dealership owns it. So it's up to the dealership to register it. Simple as that. If they don't register it by the cut-off date, and we have derogation dates, and it's it's all very complicated and probably not that interesting, but there'll be a date by which the car must be registered. Otherwise, A, first of all, the manufacturer withdraws its support on it. So instead of being able to get 10%, 15%, 20%, whatever the discount is, it, it ends up being full retail price. So A, it's overpriced by thousands of pounds anyway. But B, beyond a certain date, the DVLA do not allow you to register it. So you have a car in stock that is not registered. You're not allowed to register it. So it becomes a, a tin of beans at that point. It's It would have to be repurposed for something else, turned into a, a track-only car. Or, I mean, as you say, I suppose you could export it to... Um, to somewhere with a slightly less developed CO2 policy. But again, if it's full-up retail money, what are the chances of somebody in a less developed country being able to afford it in the first place? So, no, unfortunately, they all get registered. Any that do slip through the net become a, a very expensive showroom ornament or paperweight. Barbecue set. Yeah, barbecue set, unless you can uh, unless you can park it up. I think there's there's been the odd... Um, RS Focus has surfaced that wasn't registered at the time. I believe they then have to go through a um, almost a kit car procedure, you know, because you can actually register anything you want. You know, you can register something you nailed together in your shed, um, made completely out of random parts, as long as it meets certain safety standards. Um, as as a kit car, you're uh, you're pretty much okay. So again, I think you. Probably wouldn't want to tuck a few dozen KAs aside in a barn and uh, and bet the money on the future value. But if you tucked, let's say, 10 Mark I Focus RS to one side, I think regardless of whether they were registered or not, you'd uh, you'd get very good money for them these days. If you could live with a Q plate, I guess. Uh, yeah, so I'd say, I'd, I dare say if you had a, an unregistered McLaren F1, let's say, that, that probably wouldn't knock its value too much. That's probably a good investment, I would say. 
Well, the thing is, you can still register a lot of these cars as, as new and, and standard cars. There was someone who registered a Sierra Cosworth on a Y plate, is in the last Y plate in 2001. And I, it had a reg that was something like Y2K Cos or something. It was that kind of, you know, it, or Y2KRS or something similar to, to that. Um, and yes, you, you can still do it. The Q plates, there used to be loads and loads of them when I was a kid. If it, A Q is, um, if you're not familiar with this, is that it has a, a questionable history. That's all it means. It just means I can't uh, track it down. So it could be that it's a car that's been stolen, recovered, and the VIN number's been scrubbed out of it, so they can never be entirely certain it is that car. Or is it you, you've got the, the chassis from uh, the chassis or the, the monocoque or the body or whatever it is from a car of one age, the engine, you don't know how old it is, the gearbox, you don't, it's, it's a point system, isn't it? So you get however many points for a chassis, a couple of points for suspension, etc. But if you don't know how old a certain number of points worth are, then, uh, then yeah, it's questionable, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, if it's a car that, you've, that you're building up that um, you can prove uh, that the parts are, are new, they have a history, a receipt, everything else, then yes, then potentially you can register the car as a new car um, if it's something you've built yourself. And I've wondered before now whether it would be possible to build, for example, a completely new old Mini, because you can buy all the bits. And I guess you probably could, but it would be very expensive. Yes, yeah, probably not the most sensible way of going about it, but it'd be fun to try and prove a point if money was no object. And one thing that's always fascinated me, and I've, I'm a fairly regular visitor, there's a, there's a certain MOD disposals company up in the Midlands somewhere who, you know, as well as the sort of likely use self-propelled guns and seeking helicopters minus its engines, they also sell what look like new and unregistered things like Jaguars, uh, Land Rovers, not the military sort, um, but they're all for export overseas. None, they're not allowed to be sold either in UK stroke EU. And uh, I've often wondered why that might be the case, but I suspect it could very well be, as Jim was saying earlier, they're ones that can't be registered here in the UK anymore, so hence they've got to go overseas to, uh, to find a new home. So, yeah, there's the, uh, all the technology and safety systems and CO2 systems, etc. on cars become more and more commonplace. I think one thing we are seeing a lot more of these days, which is probably quite a worrying trend, is uh, is a number of recalls that are out on vehicles. I think just, just in the last couple of days, the Cougars hit the press, The only the plug-in hybrid, um, but the first plug-in hybrid that Ford have launched, uh, has uh, has all been recalled and they wrote to all the customers who'd just picked them up only a matter of days before and said oh I hope you're enjoying your car just don't don't you're not you're not plugging it in are you or don't, if, if you wouldn't mind awfully not plugging in your uh, your plug-in hybrid that you just bought uh, that that would be great because it, I mean, it shouldn't catch fire but I, it might do and it's I, it's, uh, it's a bit worrying that that a, it hasn't been tested properly in advance um i mean i i can't think it's anything to do with the hot weather in this country surely it's been uh tested all across europe and in much hotter climates than the uk or was it was it something they fitted to hot hot climate vehicles only and then we had an unexpected heat wave and uh, and a few of them caught fire and uh puma's the same that's had a, a recall on it but not just ford of course i think bmw plug-in hybrids built over the last couple of months they've all been recalled because of uh, potential wiring issues and you know as, as these cars get more and more and more complicated i think the risk for them 
going wrong is uh, is obviously greater and greater and greater. Uh, I mean, you tend you tend not to see too many cars broken down or stranded at the side of the road these days. On our website, Graham's written an article, of course, about uh, the number of cars you do see stranded at the side of the road. I think whether more of them seem to have a limp home mode these days, although it's not a particularly enjoyable journey, at least it'll operate in a manner that, that does allow you to get home and uh, and then call recovery from there. But is I, I don't know, are they, are they all just getting too complicated for their own good and, and impossible to fix at the side of the road? You know, I've come across a couple of stranded vehicles people who've broken down and actually well you lift the bonnet up and have a little poke around and you can generally find out or see what's gone wrong with it and know the bit that you need to buy whereas you know these days uh, the car will just shut itself off or ping up and say nope engine fault visit dealer and a man with a laptop needs to plug it in and tell you what's wrong with it i was going to say you know, all they do is just do the uh, the car equivalent of switching it off and back on again which generally seems to solve most technical issues these days do they now <laughs> Well, I think the biggest problem for me, actually, going going back through the years and seeing cars coming in, is when they get plugged in at the side of the road, the codes which tell you what's wrong get deleted out of the system in the hopes that it might fix the problem and send the person on their way. And actually what happens is a car that definitely has a problem, but you have no idea what it is and only occurs under certain circumstances, but again, you don't know what it is. Um, you're then left to fix, and that's a massive, massive problem because actually the cars themselves are a relatively complex beast, but I don't think the diagnostic software is always quite as good as the software that's in the car, which means that actually finding the fault is more difficult than you might originally expect. No, and I think the, the diagnostic software, very logical though it is, and written by somebody who clearly had a very logical brain, it does occasionally miss out the uh, the obvious. Uh, I mean, I was looking at a, a vehicle that was up on a ramp and, and stood underneath it. You could see the bottom of the piston because uh, there was a massive hole in the side of the engine. Um, so you could poke your finger up and poke the bottom of the piston. So I'm, I'm no master mechanic, I'm, uh, but that's that's a relatively easy thing to diagnose in that the engine is, is broken. It needs a new one. Uh, but the uh, I think the, the diagnostic procedure was, uh, you know, the sensor had gone off, which had detected low compression in cylinder four, unsurprising, given there's a massive hole in the side of the block. And it said, you know, re- remove cylinder head to have a look and see what's going on. But you, you couldn't skip the button, you know, you couldn't skip that procedure and jump straight to, I know what's wrong with it, there's a hole in the side of the engine. But it's it's not very logical. But yeah, clearing the, uh, clearing the codes in the hope that the car will start and run again, that's... Um, Almost the equivalent of a, of a parent telling a child who's fallen over and split their knee open and there's blood pouring everywhere that actually they're okay and telling them they're okay and stop crying. It's it's almost a, no, you're actually, you're okay in the car saying, no, no, I'm not, I'm, I'm broken. No, no, you're fine, you're fine, carry on, you're okay. My car's actually subject to a recall. I got a letter just this week, actually, with something to do with the... Um the onboard diagnostics not telling you when a bulb's out when you've got the indicators on but given that the all the indicators on my car are leds i can only assume that means that the module that the leds talk to is uh, faulty and it needs a, a talking to by a master mechanics laptop so i'm hoping it's not going to take too long they reckon an hour but normally it takes them four hours to try and find a list of things they're going to try and bill me for because it never goes anywhere near a main dealer so i'll i'll report back on what they think's wrong with it even though i know that it's pretty good at the minute a, a, a word outside when you when you have a moment, David. <laughs> when you say there's a problem with the indicators, that's kind of more what I was expecting maybe from your car, Jim, being a BMW. That there's no there's something flashes up on the dash doesn't tell you when they're not working. 
I don't use them, so so I never wear them out. But it's that. <laughs> um, but again, it's I, that's. I think that is probably a case in point of cars getting a little bit too complicated. Because in the old days, we had a wonderful system for diagnosing that an indicator bulb uh, wasn't working, and that's your indicators went absolutely mental when you put them on. So you thought, ah. There's something up with that. I'll change a bulb. And also, it was irritating, so it made you change a bulb. I'm going to sound 100 million years old here as well, because I've got this thing about cars and the indicators don't make enough noise. So whilst driving the old Focus the other day, and that makes a pleasant tick-tock noise to let you know that your indicators are on and you're changing lanes or whatever it's going to be. And when something else happens, it doesn't interrupt that noise. On modern cars, because the tick-tock noise isn't an actual thing moving backwards and forwards, heating up and cooling down and making the, the clicking noise. It's just a noise that the computer makes to tell you that you are indicating. When anything else happens, it overrides the sound of that, which means you don't get to hear it, which is just really irritating. I know it's just a, a very small and petty thing, but it's one of these things I found myself disproportionately incensed by when I was driving along the other day. We forget all the bongs and bings and everything else it does. Just, why can't you make a decent ticking noise? <laughs> well, you need to fit your car with a tow hitch so you get the repeater bleep every time that the thing's on. You put a plug in the back of it, then you'll get an extra beep from the back of the car every time you signal. Ah, see, th- that was fine until a bit of water or a rodent got in the electrics of the Ranger I used to smoke around in, and it started making that noise even when it wasn't plugged into a trailer. Uh, or it would short circuit and the noise would happen every time you touched the brakes. That was highly infuriating. But it did make me focus my attention. And after having spent nine hours in the car with it doing that, and uh, and I think at one point uh, it, when you turn the headlights on, it made the noise. It focused my attention and, and made me get the wiring fixed at the end of the journey. So, again, so, you know, maintenance, uh, performance by commitment. I think that's what they call it. I think if my car did that for nine hours, I'd probably set fire to it, to be honest. <laughs> well, to be fair, if you just pull over to the side of the road, plug it in to charge it up a bit, then maybe it'll do it itself. Who knows? We promised earlier on that we'd talk a little bit more about Mitsubishi. Now, this is interesting because they're a brand that became massively popular as a result of rallying. So you had that Halo product at the top, the Lancer, and the Lancer itself, not a particularly exciting car. Then it had a pretty decent uh, pickup truck the L200 which in some ways was relatively revolutionary and it actually was more like a car in some respects than um, being a pickup truck something which most of the manufacturers also now do so you've got the two-piece Navara pickup which snaps in half when it gets a bit older you've got the Ranger and you've got the Mercedes which is more car definitely in the way it drives than in pickup and you also had the Outlander Fev which is particularly ugly, but got in at the right time, before plug-in hybrids were really a thing. It wasn't a particularly good car, was it? But what it was, it was a good plug-in hybrid vehicle. Yes, and very cheap on, on company car tax. But I think Mitsubishi can be a warning, really, to other manufacturers, you see, because there are lots of manufacturers out there that have relied on their motorsport pedigree, that have relied on a couple of products, and haven't evolved as fast as they need to. And the result of this is reduced sales in the end and ultimately could be the death of the brand in the country. And I think there are lots of manufacturers out there. In fact, I think all manufacturers must realise this. They can't be blind to it, but they certainly need to step it up a gear before we lose any more. I think otherwise we're going to end up with another Rover. Cars which are just 
redeveloped, rehashed versions of older cars uh, and that just don't measure up anymore. The technology's not there, the quality's not there and all of a sudden you end up another manufacturer down. But I think it's a uh, it's a bit of a sad end for Mitsubishi because rather than trying to go out with a bang or a final push or reinvent or anything like that, it was a, you know it wasn't even a, a terminating of dealer contracts as uh, as Vauxhall did, was it? It was just uh, oh, okay, you can carry on, but we we won't be sending you any new models. So once we've run out of what we're building at the moment, that's it. You won't get any more. So it's it's kind of leaving the entire dealer body to die. A very slow and painful death, isn't it? Which is, uh, which is quite sad, and certainly doesn't, I think, bode too well for the the future of after sales or manufacturer support. Um, I would say you certainly wouldn't want to buy a new one now, would you? Unless you got it very, very cheap, as uh, as you could do with a Saab towards the end. Um, but of course, Saab had the the advantage. No, it sounds like a, a bit of a, a misnomer to say that Saab had the advantage of Vauxhall underpinnings. Um, but they did have Vauxhall underpinnings, so at least you could take your Saab to a, a Vauxhall dealer to get it fixed. I'm, uh, I'm not sure that's the same with Mitsubishi. One of the cars that obviously they're best known for was the was the Shogun, wasn't it? I mean, or as they're better known over here on import territory, the Pajero. It was a pretty handy thing off road, though. It was pretty pretty well regarded, and I think that's that's something that people are going to miss. Is yet another SUV in the range. That's another one that's not going to be around anymore. Though obviously there's still plenty of Land Rover products and. Uh, and Toyota and and various others. Everyone else has got one in their range these days. But the 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 Shogun was pretty old school, I think, wasn't it? Because it was a body on frame as opposed to being a an all in one chassis thing, which is what made it so handy. It was um, articulated and and worked well. The Shogun was just a proper four by four, and that's the thing. It's it's again like you say, it's one of those cars that was really well regarded. It had some of the cues, I think, of the Range Rover Classic front end about it. I think it's probably the headlamps that really did that. But actually they were I would I wouldn't go necessarily so far as to say they were everywhere. But they kinda of were everywhere, weren't they? And they were relatively unique in that there just wasn't so many four by fours on the road. If you had a reasonable amount of cash behind you, I guess you were driving a Land Rover or a Range Rover. But there wasn't that much in terms of the, the mid middle of the road, mid range four by fours, as you say, like there are now. I think the the SUV crossover type 4x4 was probably led by the RAV4 going back years and years. Um, and then the CRV and likes. But actually, it was a bit of a, a niche they'd carved themselves out just for the money that it was. And a, a really good car at that. And I think it is a real shame to see a manufacturer disappear like Saab and like Mitsubishi. I think, regardless of the fact that they generally go unnoticed, I don't think that this will mean they're unmissed. No, there'll be a hole. There'll be a big hole there, or Mitsubishi Shogun-sized hole, if nothing else. But the obviously all the builders are going to have to look elsewhere for their pickup trucks now, because as you said earlier on, pretty much every other one was a was an L two hundred sat about two inches off your rear bumper. And uh, yeah, it it is a shame. Whenever we lose anything like this, it's a bit less variety. It's a bit more homogeneity, if that's the word. And uh, yeah, I think we we mourn its loss. We've talked about uh, lots of miserable stuff and lots of SUVs and lots of car companies going pop, but I think this week in uh, the automotive world we have probably the best news I've heard in a long, 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 long time. Uh, BMW are going to make an M3 Touring, and that makes me really, really happy. 
Me too, because actually that means that there is an aspirational car that isn't an RS6 that is still a wagon. That's going to be absolutely cracking. I think that's going to be, as we've, uh, is probably an overused cliche, all the car you ever need, etc. But I think uh, an M3 Touring probably is all the car you'd ever need. But it's uh, it's certainly a car that I want, uh, just depending on the size of the grill. I'm not too sure what that's going to be, but we'll uh, we'll wait and see. It's going to be massive, isn't it? Let's face it, you buy something like a 7 Series now, it's going to be like a pair of gates are approaching you. It's almost as if you've driven out your driveway, <laughs> driven through the gates and taken them with you. They're still attached to the front of the car. <laughs> You'll feel like you're being tailgated by next door's house. <laughs> I'm going to go so far as to say I think the 3 Series is probably the best-looking BMW that they're making at the moment. The only one, really, that everything is still completely in proportion... Yeah, I think it's probably it's a bit colour choice dependent. I think you almost uh, you almost need to go for a darker colour just to try and blend the grill in a little bit, or uh, possibly stick a uh, WSR touring car livery on it so the whole middle of the car is black so you can't see the grill. I think that's one of the best looking three series at the moment because the grill disappears. Mm. Yeah. Uh, or otherwise, you just have to blindfold people that are oncoming towards you, which is slightly awkward when you're driving. <laughs> or maybe just leave your lights on main beam so no one can see it. Happy days. Although it might, uh, might overwhelm the ability to see the indicators, so maybe just don't use them. Maybe laser indicators. There we go, we've fixed the problem. BMW don't need to worry about redesigning your front grille. If you're driving a BMW and it's a new one, drive towards everyone with your lights on main beam and get laser indicators fixed. Excellent. But no, it's, uh, it is good news, and uh, like I say, a bit of a uh, competition. I mean, Mercedes have uh, dabbled with... AMG wagons, Audi, as you say, probably most famous for um, the powerful, quick family wagon. But uh, nice to see BMW joining in. And uh, yeah, nice to see them putting out something powerful and uh, and barnstorming that isn't an SUV. Well, of course, mainland Europe used to get the M5 estate, didn't they, that we never did because the volumes didn't mean that they were, they'd sell enough. But I can't help but think they would have sold as many as they could have made. I always thought that was a weird decision never to sell it in the UK. I'm with you on that. I like the idea of a V10 M5 wagon. I think that would just be superb. I think it would, but I think with scare um, the dog. Like modern production processes, you know, far more of the cars are modular and anything bolts on anything, drops into anything, all the wiring looms are consistent. So if that does mean a bit more choice when it comes to body styles, engines and gearboxes and getting what you want, then, uh, then happy days. Right, enough of this nonsense. It's time to end. Guys, it's been great chatting with you all again. It's been great chatting to you all again. Hopefully you'll join us next time, and we look forward to seeing you then. So from me, Mike, it's goodbye. From me, Jim, take care. Bye. And from David, see you later. Take care, guys. UK Motor Talk, a first-take media production.